1 Kings chapter 19, I invite you to turn there. And um, what I want to start with is a perspective of what we find from um, the story of Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel. Of course, Elijah is the focus, and then God is, of course, the biggest, bigger focus in all of this. So as you're turning there, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll be doing a little thumbing through Scripture in order to be able to get a sense of what God would have us learn from this tremendous passage of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the great privilege we have of bowing before you in prayer. It is a blessing to pray for one another. It's a blessing to see these three young ladies share their testimony. It's a blessing, too, to see three more uh, following along. And we pray, Father, that all of them, as they share together in this family and rejoicing in what they have seen today, uh, would be able to talk about this testimony, maybe a testimony to their younger siblings. And I thank you, Father, too, for the blessing this church has in being a testimony to each life, uh, this special mission field you've given to us within our reach of these young people in each one of these homes, in each one of these families. Father, what a blessing it is to pray and exert the loving, graceful influences of Christianity and the lessons that you give us, the ethics of Christianity, the love for Christ, the faith that you have given to us in the Word. Father, what a blessing it is to communicate that, the truth of it, the reality, the authenticity. And I thank you for this church body that seeks to live the truth of the Word and, uh, Father, that you have uh, given to us at least an understanding of your word that helps us to seek to live in such a way that we cannot be called to account for having lived in a false way. I thank you for your word. I thank you for its dependability. I thank you that it can be taken no matter where we are and used and applied and found to be true and evidence of eternal truth and that which will bring before you, you glory and praise. And I thank you, Father, that you've given to us that and entrusted us with that mission and commission in life. I ask that as we turn to the word today, you will help our hearts be drawn together before you. I ask, Father, that you will bless with an understanding of the scripture. May we each come away with some fresh lesson from this very famous portion of the word of God. May it be something that we see anew and afresh because you teach us because you give to us insight that will encourage and inform our days and the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. First Kings chapter 19, we'll be looking essentially at verses 5 through, um, well, verse 14 in what we'll share together today. I know we're not going to be able to get everything done, but the joy of it is that we'll be able to start it. And I'll get some lessons started in your thought process that you can take with you for the next week or so and, and uh, commune upon these truths as you walk with the Lord. I know we'll be taking a break next weekend as you are introduced to um, our new executive director with the SBCV is a great guy. You will enjoy a, a perspective of what is happening with our fellowship and um, the, 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 the scope of what this state fellowship is all about. He is a, a special blessing. I think you will receive a great blessing as you learn and get to meet him and then learn how to pray for our great fellowship that we have in this state, the SBCV. But uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, we have learned thus far that Elijah saw certain things, and that's what drove him to run into the wilderness and to escape, so to speak. And of course, defeat is where we find him uh, thinking that he has let God down, he's let everybody down. And, and there is a natural thought to this that I think comes very naturally to somebody like Elijah. That is that all he has seen of God's work is big. 
He has seen God do great and wonderful things. And so he has come with a burden on his heart to see a nation repentant before God. And all he saw was the Lord, he is God. And then they went home. And then he hears from Jezebel tomorrow. You will be dead as dead as all those prophets are. I will see to it. And the Lord do more to me than, than what I promised to do to you if I don't make it happen. That Lord false God Baal. And so he sees this great conflict. He sees himself as having been defeated, as failing in what God had called him to do. And instead of simply staying put in the place that God had commissioned him and placed him, he ran away from Jezebel and away from that place where his commissioning, his post was given. There was a designated post. God had brought him there by a miraculous thing. And yet Jezebel turns around and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. Uh, and, and there's nobody who's standing with him. He's alone in Jezreel. The people went home. They didn't come and defend him. And so he's thinking, what's the purpose of all this? What is the use of all of these things? Now, it's interesting when you go through the different commentaries to review what they say is going on in his mind. And to me, we can't say categorically what he's thinking. We can surmise based upon how Scripture teaches us to interpret the text. And so we have to stop and interpret it by looking at what God reveals about this event in Elijah's life. Look with me, if you will, down through the verses at verse 8. So he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. That's Mount Sinai. So automatically, we must be thinking about what events occurred at Sinai. Why would he go there? Now, obviously, he didn't get a call from God to go there. He's not told to go. He's just told the journey you have is long, which means that he already knew where he's trying to get. He had gotten as far as he could in his own strength, and that was the juniper tree. And there he fell asleep. There he was saying, God, kill me. I've got no use. I have less value than my father's. And so he's got that sense that he's really failed. And so he goes upon the food that the angel fed him, 40 days and 40 nights. Notice further, there is this little word in the next verse. And there he went into a cave. Hebrew language, the cave. So it must have been something known, perhaps to him or to others. It is something that was not just a cave on the side of the mountain. There is a purpose in his going. And God will point that out as we go, I think. And I, th I don't think we're reading too much into the text as we go. Look further at what he says. He spent the night in that place. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous of the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. He doesn't say this once, but he says it twice in answer to the same question from God. God says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? God didn't send him there. Elijah, why have you come? Is the question. Elijah answers with the boldness of his heart. Lord, I'm alone and this has been a failure. I'm the only one. Look at the people. They walked away. Basically, that's what he's reflecting. The Lord does a few things with him, which we'll review in the future. But look what he says in verse 14. And he said, again, the Lord in his still small voice says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel 
have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Answer is the same question. Same question asked, same answer given. Notice further down in verse 18, another verse that will sound very familiar. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. These verses sound familiar because they appear in the New Testament in the book of Romans chapter 11. So if you'll turn to Romans chapter 11, I'd like to show you the context, which in effect helps us get a sense of what we're learning about what Elijah is doing at this cave and speaking with the Lord. Romans chapter 11. Now those of you who have been coming to our Sunday night study as we've been looking at future end time events, have understood that we've looked at Romans or spoken about Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, Israel, who they were, what God was doing in the Old Testament. Romans 10, where they are today. It's not a godly nation. It's not a, a Christian nation. It's not even claiming to be a religious nation. It's just a nation among the nations on the earth. Special though they be, they're just a nation on this earth. There is not a great revival taking place among Jewish people. And chapter 10 talks about that. But chapter 11 comes along and says, in the future... When God determines its time, when God states its time, he says, I have a remnant in Israel and I will once again turn to them and they will once again call, claim me as their God and they are going to be my people. And so that looks forward to the great kingdom day. And that's why kingdom is such a specific thing in the word of God, especially to those who heard the word used. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse one. Say, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Now, foreknow is that great theological term. It's the idea of knowing not just beforehand, but it's got that great sense of a predestining, loving act. It's grace. It's the concept of grace. And the story of Elijah is nothing if it's not a story of grace. Grace is something given to not just those, it's not given on the basis or attracted to the basis of well-deserving people. Nor is it repelled by ill-deserving people. Grace doesn't function in that way. It is not attracted to you because you're a well-deserving person. God's grace doesn't come to you because you're a good, good egg because you've worked hard, you love the Lord, that because you have repented as best as you can, grace doesn't come that way. Nor is it repelled because you're ungodly. Grace doesn't function in that form. It's the terminology we're finding being placed upon this story of Elijah. God's grace to Elijah was not because Elijah deserved to be released from his call upon God to say, kill me. But there is nothing but grace all through this text of Scripture. And I think it speaks about the whole intent of the passage. Look further. Or do you not, not know that the Scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Notice, pleads against. There is the standard of an individual coming before God in prayer. Now, before he has said, before whom I stand. Now he doesn't stand in front of Jezebel. He flees, and there he goes off into the wilderness. And God draws him or empowers him to be able to make it to his goal. 
Mount Sinai, a great place of miracle, great place of activity. And God's going to use this story to teach us something about what he will do with Israel. He says, I am left, they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then at his, this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it is of works. It is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest was blinded. We're blinded just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. You know, isn't it interesting that the Bible helps us interpret the story based upon how it's used in the New Testament? We learn about Elijah, the man like us, and yet for effectual fervent prayer warrior. What an incredible prayer warrior. Israel noticed the power of this individual, and he is a powerful guy. But he, as he lived in that sense of seeing God do incredible things with the fire coming from heaven, the people didn't repent. That's what he knew he was called to do, was to be a part of that. He assumed it would be like a Moses. He assumed it would be like any other uh, Old Testament saint who was used of God in a mighty way, but God didn't use him that way in this instant. Instead, Elijah went flying into the wilderness. But where was he going? He had a purpose to go to the great mountain where God had done great things because he assumed that was what God was calling him to do. But that wasn't God's intention. There's going to be a totally different lesson. So we find in Romans 11 this use that tells us God had an intended purpose to teach us incredible things. There's a remnant. It wasn't going to be a big uh, transformation of all the people at that point in time. But as we follow the story of Elijah reaching Elisha and, Eli and God doing more things in a mighty way, God had an intention. It wasn't for Elijah to see the mountain split in two or find the earthquake or see the wind and the fire and see that is who he was supposed to be. No, he was supposed to hear the still small voice. And so Elijah, though he might have felt that he was a failure, wasn't. He was driven into the wilderness because he thought he was a failure. And he met with God, and grace was bestowed upon him in that. Let me take you to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Another passage that speaks about this mountain and what was the thought process, perhaps, going through Elijah's thought. Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and blackness, and darkness, and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are re registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So we have this great imagery of this mountain to which Elijah was driven to go. He is a driven individual, gotten as far as he could in his own strength to the juniper bush. But God, in his grace, carried him further. Remember, last time we talked about this, we reflected upon the idea that he had cried out and said, God, kill me. And the angel nudges him, awake, 
rise and eat. So he eats and he sleeps. No thankfulness, no repentance, nothing. He sleeps. And then the angel nudges him again. Perhaps it was the end of the day when the angel fed him. He slept through the night. Next morning early, the angel nudges him. More food prepared for you. And on 40 days, 40 nights, he travels on the strength of that food. It was a miracle that God did. Of course, 40 days and 40 nights reminds us of Moses, doesn't it? And it ought to. Let me take you back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 19, I believe, to start with. Exodus 19. And we see once again the picture of what is being shared in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Exodus chapter 19. Verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. On the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Zion in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, sanctified the people, washed their clothes, said to the people, Be ready, for the third day do not come near your wives. When it came to pass that the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain, sound of trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. When the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spake, spoke, and the God answered him by voice. The Lord came down upon Mount Sinai in the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Just picture the, the power, the awesome impression that would have been understood and felt by all the people. Can you just imagine the fear that would come upon you uh, as you saw the power of God demonstrated? Isn't it interesting to remember that Moses and Elijah are the two who spoke with the Lord at the transfiguration? I think it's fascinating. Moses and Elijah, two peas in a pod, if you want to call them that. There is this power in who they were. There is this uh, men of action in what they did. There is this courageous uh, life. Now, they're flawed because they're human beings. They're not God. But yet they are specifically allowed to speak with the Lord at the Mount of Transfiguration, speaking about the things that were to come. You know, I think it's fascinating to see them paired by God. And being paired together, do you not see in our story that we're looking at in 1 Kings 19? The similarity in intention and purpose. Moses separated the sea. Moses led the people out upon dry ground, out of Egypt. Moses brought them to the brink of the promised land. Moses was the one who gave them Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Elijah assumed great things. That was what God talks about in repentance and revival and the work. And, Mo and Elijah was used in incredible ways and had a reputation for the rest of the days of Israel's nationhood. The Elijah was to come. Elijah felt he was a failure. failure. He had not seen the repentance that he anticipated. So his lessons are going to be different at Sinai 
than Moses' lessons. However, that is why I believe he was driven there. Not because God commanded him to go. Look at the depth of his heart that he would say, I need to get there. I need to be where God was. Is he running from God like Jonah? No. Running from his place of responsibility? Yes. He's making a decision, but his decision is driving him into the very presence of God. And that's where he goes, to the cave. It's the grace of God that gives him something different. Let me show you in the book of 1 Kings, or I'm sorry, Exodus, chapter 33, this reading. This is what I think is the intention and the purpose of what we find in 1 Kings chapter 19. Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you said to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. You have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, that I might find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. Do you not think that Elijah, as a student of the word, would know these words? I do think so. Wouldn't it have been something if that was his driving ambition, to be in the presence of the Lord? Verse 14, he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. He said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I also do this thing that you have spoken. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. He said, Please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. For the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Is it not possible that Elijah was striving for that privilege, that sense of, I can go back then and finish the task, if I'm in the presence of God, if I've found grace in the sight of the Lord? Let me take you to 1 Kings chapter 19 and show you how I believe God began to respond, so to speak, if you want to call it that, how he interacted with his prophet. Look at verse 8 of 1 Kings 9, 19. So he rose and ate and drank, went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into the cave and spent the night in that place. Now look at these words. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, do you see the significance of that compared to what he had heard before? The word of the Lord came to Elijah. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go, speak to Ahab. Show yourself to Ahab. Now we see the word of the Lord came to him. And he. This is an indication, I think, of what we're seeing in Exodus 33. God was going to meet with Elijah, his prophet, he's being gracious. 
and he. This is different than the other revelations that God had for this great prophet. The other times God said here, this is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to him. He's supposed to go. This is the command. And he goes and obeys. This time he pursues an audience with God is what I believe is his intent. Running away from his place of responsibility, he hasn't seen what he expected. It looks like he's all alone and God has a lesson for him in grace. And so God, this time, as Moses waits at the cave and has slept and waited, the Lord's word comes and God himself. It could have been a theophany. It could have been a Christophany. Somehow the Lord was there in a way that was different than other times. And it's like the Moses story where Moses was given that privilege of the grace of God. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I wonder if it was truly a Christophany, does it have a relationship to the transfiguration as he once again spoke with the Son of God? What an amazing lesson we have here. Do not, like I said, shared with you two weeks ago, this is not depression. This is not some kind of psychological whatever. This is a man of God who has loved God, and, and yet he feels himself to be a failure and, and defeated. And so he goes to the only place where the power of God stands out in its greatest form, Mount Sinai, where Moses met with God face to face. And he cries out and says, may I see you face to face? May I be with you? And God in his grace says, yes. What an amazing lesson we can draw from this. Now, we haven't gotten really into the meat of the text, but I hope it set the stage. I want you to be thinking about this lesson in a little different way than perhaps you've heard it in Sunday school or some other place. When you compare Scripture with Scripture and you see the lessons of a man of effectual fervent prayer, because that's the lesson of his life. Failed, yes. Defeated, yeah. Running, yes. Perhaps for the wrong reasons. But he's running to a place of privilege and blessing, the presence of God. What he wants is a nation repentant. Where that nation saw the power of God was at Mount Sinai. That's where he goes. Believers, do you see some lessons in there for you today? First of all, God could very well have said, okay, Elijah, you've run. It's time to come home. You asked to be allowed to be released, I'll take you. But God was gracious to a prophet who ill-deserved it. See, grace is God's bearing of himself towards you with favor. It's not attracted to you because you're a good person. Not attracted to you because of your value. That's not what grace does. It's also not repelled because you are uh, something that repels him in your sin. Grace is not repelled by ill-deserving. God instead acts in a way that's gracious towards those to whom he will show himself with favor. That's what he says to Moses. That's what he shows to Elijah. And that's what he says to you and I. If you or I are here today with a burden of heart and says, I've repelled God, come to him in repentance and live within that realm of grace that he's displayed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Confess that sin and forsake it and walk away from it. But also don't come here today thinking that you deserve his grace. None of us do. We're not worthy of the least of his favor or of his grace. I think that's one of the greatest lessons that we find here. God is the God of all grace. That's what the scriptures tell us. 
So God in his graciousness deals with this prophet who has just slept and eaten, not repented, not cried out for anything else. Seems to be a one song Charlie because the Lord says, why are you here? And he says the same words. But he's saying these words because he's jealous for the name of God. And God says, I will show my grace to you. That was the miracle of what we're about to study in the next several weeks. I think another thing that stands out as you remember the story is that there's not, God is not in the other big things. But God is in that still small voice. We're going to learn the power of a whisper when that power of a whisper is truth. There's a power in a whisper. You may be living your life expecting great things of God from God, and God may do that in His grace. And yet He may also say, no, it's not time for that. So you kind of, all you think you see in God's work is a whisper in your life. There's a power in a whisper. God's going to teach Elijah that. There's a power in the step of what Elijah's life was. I'm trusting that we can spend some time in the presence of God and reflect and be thankful for what God has taught us today. God's grace doesn't come to you because you deserve it. It's not being repelled because you do not. Come to him. Place yourself upon the mercy of God. Let me give you a few moments to bow and talk to the Lord about some of these little lessons and apply them to your heart in worship, and then I'll close. Father, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you for this grand uh, recounting of the events in Elijah's life. Father, thank you for not uh, whitewashing the word, but also thank you for giving to us that which helps us to interpret and understand what we see and what we learn of Elijah and your grace. Father, help us to have gained context by what we have done today and just reviewing the scriptures. Father, may we see the stage set to understand what it was that Elijah saw and, and was given the grace to see and hear. And I pray, Father, that you will instruct us even this day. Maybe we would dare to try and pray and ask for you to do great things, and we ought to. Father, you may be pleased to answer that prayer in an affirmative way, but you also may be pleased to just simply allow the still small voice to be that which is your illustration and your evidence of your work, the small things. Father, teach us to rejoice and treasure the small things that you do, for they are miracles as well. Father, teach us as well to pursue you. There is a desire as we are in prayer. The purpose of prayer is to, to draw us, to want to be in your presence, and ultimately to want to be in your presence at the end of our life. Father, it's that which primes the pump. It's that which causes us to want to be in your presence, to let go of the world and to draw closer to you and to anticipate that day when we come into your presence in that promotion to glory. Father, we see this in the events of Elijah's life too. The man of prayer, effectual, fervent prayer. No wonder he desired to be in your presence where he, where he could see the power of God. Lord, cause us to treasure that each and every day of our life and our prayer time and our devotions with you, to have that yearning to be in your presence. Father, cause us to grow in grace. And Father, help us to be reminded of the nature of your grace. It is a great grace. Our God is a loving God, a God who keeps his covenant and promises. And even so, as was illustrated with Elijah, you did the same. Help us to remember that you will not let us go. You will not leave us nor forsake us. May we be courageous for the things of God. In Jesus' name, amen.